Hello, lovely ladies. Hi, Kim. Hi, Jenny. Hello. I am really excited about this episode. We have a really important topic that I think everyone, and yes, I mean everyone, needs to hear. Kim sat down with Katie Novak to talk about all things UDL. For those of you out there that may not be familiar with this acronym, UDL stands for Universal Design for Learning. And we were fortunate to hear more about this framework from one of its leading advocates. And as you are listening to this conversation, consider what are the barriers for your students in your class? Here's Dr. Katie Novak sharing how to empower students who are disabling educational system. We are here with Dr. Katie Novak, and we are at our third annual equity conference at CNUSD. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in education and the work that you do today? I did not set out in this life to be a teacher. I wanted to be a a doctor, actually, uh, like an MD doctor. And that's what I was studying to do in college until I did an internship. And I was like, oh, gosh, this isn't for me. So I should go into the family business because both my parents are teachers. Um, I went back and got my master's in education. I taught two years of high school English, and then I taught nine years of middle school English. I taught seventh grade. And then uh, ultimately, I went on to be an administrator. And right now, I'm the assistant superintendent of schools in Groton Dunstable. I think I have like the best contract in the universe because I'm a 0.8 assistant superintendent, which allows me to really do the work um, day to day. And then I get 52 days a year to go consult and to go to conferences and to kind of really expand my borders and learn from other people and you know, share the little the little bit of knowledge that I have that maybe other people don't have, but then I get so much more from everybody that I connect with. So it's been a really cool opportunity to to do the things that I love without having to choose one or the other. So the focus of our chat today and of your keynote is UDL, which stands for Universal Design for Learning. So can you explain to our listeners and our families what UDL is and why you think it's so important for educators to use it? What we know is that school does not work for all learners. It never has. And a lot of people will say that our systems are broken, and I actually don't believe that at all, because our systems do exactly what they were designed to do, which was to elevate certain populations of students while oppressing others. And the reason that it doesn't work for so many students is because there are just so many barriers inherent in the way that we design traditional education. So I'm going to just use an example as a former English teacher is um, one really common thing that we do in schools is we assign every student one book. Um, And when I say one book, I actually mean handing out a novel, a paperback novel, to every single student. But the reality is, is if I walked into your classroom and I didn't know your kids yet, I know that a novel can be disabling for some students. So proactively, I know that you might have some students who cannot decode at that level yet. You might have some English language learners who aren't um, speaking English yet. Um, You might have students with some fine motor issues who can't turn the pages of a novel. You could have students with visual impairment who can't see the words on a very small novel. I know that without knowing your students. And so UDL is really about proactively identifying the barriers that are inherent in one-size-fits-all teaching. You know, essentially, I'm going to do the same thing for all kids. And it's before that you know the students. And so a lot of people think of it like, what am I going to do for Katie? And it's not what you're going to do for Katie. It's how does the curriculum allow itself to be flexible enough to meet the needs of everyone? So with a book, for example, um, I might say, you know, I want to do a really short, profound 
reading of a piece of text, but I'm going to make sure that the students have it in audio, that they have it digitally so they can throw a translation software on there, they can enlarge the text, they can work with partners to do read-alouds, I might have a video of it if it's like, a, you know, if it's To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a movie that I can say, before we read this section, you can watch this clip. But I'm going to do that child agnostic, okay? I'm going to provide that kind of buffet for all students. And so what we know is when our, when our kids are not successful, it's not they don't have the potential to be successful, it's that the product or the process that we provided for them had too many disabilities and restrictions for them to be successful in their own way. Um, and so a lot of people get lost in the word choice. And I see a lot of these menus, you know, where it's like, you're all going to read this one size fits all text. And then you can make a poster or you can make a diorama or you can write. And it's mm -hmm. like, whoa, 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 whoa. There were so many barriers in the first part. It really doesn't matter what you're doing in the second part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a teacher that really believes in UDL believes that our systems are disabled um, and that when we can identify what the barriers are that make them disabling and that we can provide other options, we can empower students to make the choices that will get them to a very specific place. And I truly believe, truly believe that, that every student can meet goals when we, when we basically strip the restriction of one-size-fits-all teaching. So sometimes when the barriers are very real for students and sometimes when we see like, you know, we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird, teachers will think, well, the reading of To Kill a Mockingbird is the barrier, so we got to throw out the book and we're going to do something else. We are just going to watch the movie. We are just going to listen to the audio. But that's not what UDL is saying, right? It's saying we're still going to read the book. We're not taking out all of the rigor and then just creating all of these different fun, engaging activities. It's still about doing the rigorous task, but providing ways in which students can access that task? So I would always have all students read a short, profound text. I do not believe that we should have all students read a full novel all the time, just because committing to a novel takes a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what I always say is like, absolutely, the reading level is non-negotiable for me. It's like you can get the background knowledge by previewing the, the text. You mm -hmm. can, you know, go through the vocab. You can have a, a, a student read it. But the reality is, is I don't want an easier version of To Kill a Mockingbird. And for a student who cannot, you know, decode at that level yet, or who is going to struggle with that, you know, 200 pages could be a pretty unproductive struggle. But a chapter... Anybody can, can capture a chapter. Um, and so what I usually do when I teach is I usually say, we're all going to read this chapter non-negotiable. And then you're going to choose a novel that follows the standard that is at the same level that is more mm -hmm. culturally sustaining and linguistically appropriate for you. If we're talking about, you know, we're talking about characterization, for example, you know, I would like, we're really going to focus on characterization. We're really going to focus on To Kill a Mockingbird. And then it would be these other texts also have really rich characters, but they allow students to, to see themselves in books, whereas like a traditional teacher choice of 10 novels a year will not meet all students' needs. Yeah. The selection is, is really going to be impaired by my implicit bias, and I shouldn't get to be the one who chooses what mm -hmm. students read. So I would always ground it in texts that I found really important. If you have a truly, truly inclusive classroom, um, and I mean inclusive, like I want students in my classroom who are nonverbal, you know, mm -hmm. who are, um, you know, uh, newcomers, you know, a 250-page novel is a 
very unproductive struggle for some students, even yeah. though they can absolutely meet the rigor of the task. So we know you get this question a lot, but we're going to ask it anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so we first started learning about the UDL framework. A lot of us have this out of like, well, how really is that different than differentiation? Mm -hmm. um, or I already do this because of course I differentiate my, my units and my lessons. So what is your response to this? The thing that's tricky is, is UDL is a way to differentiate. Differentiated instruction is also another way to differentiate. The difference is whether it's proactive or reactive. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the real key there is like I can universally design a lesson for your classroom that would meet the needs of any student academically, behaviorally, socially, emotionally, you know, put literally, I'm always like, put me in coach, like put me in a classroom. Don't tell <laughs> right? me about the kids. And I can universally design the heck out of it because I know what the barriers are that are inherent in design. Differentiation is now that I know the kids, uh-oh, Katie can't do that. Now I have to do something for Katie. And so teachers often think in terms of like, what am I going to do for those students who are struggling with specific struggling students in mind? And as soon as you start putting a deficit-based label on students, you will have lower expectations for them. And whatever you design, the, again, the rigor will be compromised and that perpetuates school failure. So proactive design is really the process of saying, what is it that students have to know or be able to do? And how is that going to be non-negotiable. So example, if the standard is solve an algebraic equation, the question is how can I design a lesson so every student, regardless of variability, will be able to solve? And then the question is what assessments will I accept as evidence that the solving has happened? So, you know, a lot of the times I look at these choice boards, for example, and it's mm -hmm. like I want students to explain the process of photosynthesis. Okay, that's going to be the standard. And then I have choices like they can provide a class presentation. Okay, yep, they could explain it that way. They're going to draw the process of photosynthesis. Nope, you can't explain it that way unless you create an artistic product and then you explain it. Um, another one's like make it out of clay. And I can look at it and eat, within two seconds I can say these four choices are not standards-based. Mm -hmm. They're related to the topic, but like I need to know if a student can explain it. And they can't explain it by making a bunch of like clay leaves and, you know, mm -hmm. putting labels on it. You know, when you're thinking about the firm goals and the flexible means, UDL is how can I proactively design it so all students have equal opportunities to, to learn. The differentiated instruction is layered on top of that. In a multi-tiered system, there will be both. And it's if I have truly designed to the best of my ability and I have eliminated barriers, what students may also need additional targeted support as like a tier two intervention. And that's going to be based on student data. That's going to be based on student evidence. And a lot of the times we think of that as specialized instruction, but that has to be like a layer on the cake. You cannot start with differentiated instruction because when you do that, you are literally taking away a student's opportunity to learn how to learn. We've talked a little bit about what it what it shouldn't look like mm -hmm. uh, with the choice boards and the you know the draw clay figures, the interpretive dances. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit what does it look like in a primary educational setting, what does it look like in secondary? Essentially, there's the, going to be the same kind of structure regardless, is when I think about designing a UDL lesson, the first thing is like, what are my advanced considerations about barriers in the environment? So, you know, whether it's primary or secondary, you have to start thinking about like, you know, have I eliminated the barriers that would prevent students from wanting to work together? You know, so have I created a classroom community where there's like equal respect, you know, people have sentence stems for, you know, agreeing of disagreeing, 
working. We already have plans in place for how we're going to work together. So you really have to think about that. The second is, is, you know, I want any class to be really difficult. I want every kid to be challenged. And in order to do that, I have to make sure they know how to cope with challenges. So do I, the advanced considerations are, you know, are we thinking about social emotional learning and self-regulation and coping? Because when kids come in, I'm going to say, if I do my job, your brain's going to hurt. You're going to be like, oh, this is so frustrating. And that is literally beautiful. It's perfect. You know, I always showed kids pictures of like, you know, big bodybuilders that say that hurts to look like that. Like you have to lift weights. You're going to be sore. If I don't make your brain sore, then like, please put me out of my misery. I shouldn't be in here with you. But because you have this, this effort and persistence that requires that it's a hard feeling. And so that hard feeling is again, I think so many people jump to mindfulness breaks without thinking about what is the purpose of a mindfulness break. You know, throwing on a go noodle without being really purposeful about why it's provided is just kind of what I call Pinteresting education. Like that looks like a cute idea, but it's more when you collectively in your group are feeling like you've used your other strategies, you've looked at the graphic organizers, you've talked to me and you're still frustrated, that's a good time to take a break, okay? So again, those are advanced considerations, you know, collaboration, transitions between activities. I don't want um, to be always serving up scaffolds and things like that as though I am a waitress. And so always making sure that students know in the classroom where they can find the things that will help them. So I used to spend a lot of time like, you know, this website will allow you to translate things. This is a great website, vocabulary.com, if you don't know the word, because I don't want to be always reacting. Like, I don't know what that word means. I don't know what that word means. I mean, starting in you know, kindergarten, you can teach kids how to use an iPad to like find a visual of certain words by scanning the word. Once the lesson is starting, I would say it always, always starts with what the goal is. You know, kids should know at the end of this hour, day, week, month. This is what all of you will know and this is what all of you will be able to do. And if you cannot do it, that is on me as a teacher. So I would always share the goal with them. Um, and then I would provide an opportunity for some self-reflection. So, you know, what what do you already know about this? Like, do you need some time to research it? Like, you know, do, you, do we want to look at visuals as a class? You know, how does this relate to what you already know? Like, give some time to actually reflect. I really think that students should have a voice in designing their own education. And so before a big unit, I would be like, okay, let's think about the last unit, what worked, what didn't work. You know, what do you think that, that we should, as I'm designing this next unit, like, you know, what do you think? And they'll say, oh, I wish we didn't do that. I'd be like, well, we have to do that. But how could we maybe cope with that better? Or, you know, what's the timing like? And there would always be a mini lesson of direct explicit instruction. I don't want to replace teachers in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, I would always be like, okay, now that you know what it is that you have to know or be able to do, let me give you some exemplars. Let me give you like the big, big core things that you need to understand so you can better self-differentiate your learning. And I would do that in a universally designed way. I'd have visuals, I'd have manipulatives, we'd do activities together. And then once they kind of were planted in this place of like, okay, I understand what we have to do and why it's important for me to know how to do it, then I would provide the self-differentiated learning. So now that you know what you know and you don't know, now choose what's best for you to continue to know it. So in elementary, it's going to be more like, let's say it's a math class. Do you want to come over here with the teacher in a small group and continue to learn? Do you want to, you know, go on Zern or like a, you know, another kind of, um, you know, planet turtle and practice that way? Do you want to go and, you know, practice some problems on the, um, in the book? And if you do want to do it in the book, do you want to use a whiteboard? Do you want to use a calculator? Do you want to use your fingers? Do you want to use manipulatives? And they're really self-differentiating their learning, you know, and the teacher is not saying, 
you are struggling, you must do this. You know, we allow students to make opportunities first. When we have evidence that what they're doing isn't moving them closer to the goal, then we will differentiate instruction and provide a little bit more of that support. Once they have done some self-differentiated learning, and again, in high school, it's going to be very similar. It might be go online and find the resources you need. It could be that wide open once Mm -hmm. they're in high school because if the advanced considerations have already taught them what is a reliable, valid source, how do you find one? You know, how do you determine the difference between alternate news and and real news? And uh, and then ultimately at the end, I would always do a self-differentiated assessment. Again, I think this is where the menu boards get a really nasty kind of rep, but they can work if they're all standards-based. So for instance, uh, I was an English teacher. Every kid is writing. Um, And if every kid is going to be writing, then they're going to write. And so my thing is like, okay, so what do they need to be able to write? They maybe need Dragon actually speaking. Um, They might need an exemplar. They might need a a graphic organizer, but they're not going to dance because the standard (laughs) says writing. So we have been talking a lot about UDL, and we know that there are many great resources and videos that we can learn more about on your blog and on the CAST website, and we're going to link those in our show notes. But one of the most powerful videos is the one of Todd Rose. He did a TEDx talk about debunking this idea of the average learner. Can you explain this myth of the average learner and how we might need to rethink the learners in our classroom? Essentially, there's this great John Dewey quote. I use it all the time. He wrote an essay, I believe it was called On Teaching, and he said, to say that you are a teacher when all of your students did not learn is like saying you sold something when no one bought it. Mm-hmm. So often I hear, you know, I, we taught it, and the kids, you know, the kids don't get it as if the kids are kind of the problem. And the reality is, is most of the time when we're teaching, we're teaching to somebody who is mythically average. And essentially what that means is, is if you look at a bell-shaped curve and you look at anything, whether it's height or emotional intelligence, um, essentially you're going to have a bell-shaped curve where there are going to be some people who are at the bottom 10% of the world in that particular characteristic. You know, they're the 10% least funny people or, you know, they're the 10% most athletic or the fastest. And because there's this great variability, what traditional education did is it removed people in those margins. So if you were really, really significantly below, you would be educated somewhere else. And if you were really significantly above or at the top of the margins, you would be put somewhere else. And everybody else kind of fell close enough to that midpoint, that 50%. And so education was designed, you know, for, in a sixth grade classroom, kids who have decent behavior, kids who have the ability to, to, to function in a social-emotional way, and that also are close to grade level with their learning. And that is a mythical average learner. And to go back to the food, I always say, like, if you serve a lasagna, there's some people who can eat it. The reality is, is not all people can eat it. When we say all means all, not everyone can eat a lasagna because some people, you know, if it's a meat lasagna, you have people who are vegan, lactose intolerant, gluten sensitive. And so, you know, the casserole is an amazing example of it's for a mythical average eater. But there's no such thing as an average eater, and there's no such thing as an average student. And so we have to move away from the curriculum design process that ignores kids who are in the margins because that is a beautiful part of variability. And also what we know, and Todd Rose talks about all the time, is no one is in the bottom 10% of everything. And everybody is in the top 10% of something. And we use such a narrow measure of what we believe is average, which is essentially IQ and your ability to behave, when we have students that have these amazing, amazing strengths, and they'll never get a chance to be educated with their peers because of our narrow view of what a student is. Thank you. 
So we end each interview with a segment that we call Tomorrow, This Week, and This Month. With so many changes occurring in 21st century education and learning, what advice can you give to teachers or families to try tomorrow, to try this week, and to try this month? So I would say to try tomorrow is to ask your students about their learning. I am so big on talking to kids. A feedback survey is a great place to start, but that's not the only way to start. You know, really asking students like, you know, are you challenged in my classroom? Do you think that I value you as a learner? Um, you know, what are ways that I could challenge you more? I don't think that we optimize student voice enough, and I also believe that about student families. And so I would say, you know, when you're starting, you know, school, it's like, what do you want to get out of this year? And, you know, how could I support your family? And, you know, tell me, you know, always, you know, what I, what I could do for you as a learner. I think what you could do this week is to start really thinking about, you know, just one practice that you have and what are the barriers inherent in that? Just identifying the barriers of, wow, I do teach a lot of novels, you know, in English class, or, you know, I do provide a lot of worksheets in math class, or, you know, we do do a lot of labs that kids are reading off of paper in science. And just think of one practice, and then just list what those barriers are, and start thinking about, you know, gosh, you know, I might have students who have, you know, can't decode that. Maybe that's not culturally responsive if I'm always choosing the books for students. You know, and then I would say over the next month, start to eliminate those barriers by, by providing other options. And so I think they all come together where it's like optimizing students student voice, recognizing barriers, and then using that student voice to help you come up with better options to eliminate those barriers. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us. Um, we really appreciate your, your talk on UDL today. Thank you. One of my favorite ideas from Dr. Novak is that UDL is about empowering students through choice. I think that's just beautiful. I also appreciated the distinction that UDL is about being proactive in our lesson design and instruction with all our students. I loved her line where she mentions that students should have a voice in their own educational experience. Do we take the time to ask and listen to our students? Could we? We should. So listeners out there, CNUSD EdChat wants to extend a challenge. Y'all ready for this? Ooh, let's do it. We think this topic is worthy of so much more discussion, so we want to continue the conversation together. Yes, that sounds fun. We challenge you all to get Dr. Katie Novak's book, UDL Now, and learn alongside us. On our show notes page, we will post our notes, our thoughts, our ideas as we read through the book together. We encourage you to read with us and tweet out your key takeaways. That's right. And don't forget to tag at CNUSD EdChat and hashtag UDL Chat. Until next time. Hi, I'm Easton. I'm four. Hi, I'm Harper. I'm seven. Thank you for listening to CNUSD EdChat. Please be sure to follow them on Twitter and Facebook at CNUSD EdChat. Thank you for your support. Bye. Bye. We have more motivating and thought-provoking episodes available now on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, and wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to share these episodes with an educator or family member. Thank you for listening to another episode of CNUSD EdChat. This episode was co-produced by Kim Kemmer, Jenny Cordura, and me, Kate Jackson, and edited by Ken Pucci.